The scripture for this morning comes from Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amotz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Uh, When this part of Isaiah was being written, the northern half of Israel had made an an alliance with another kingdom called Aram, where they were planning on conquering the southern half of Israel. As you can imagine, this was a pretty big deal. Half of Israel had decided to turn on the other half and go to war with them. They were going to conquer Jerusalem with the help of some foreigners, and it was going to be a disaster. As Isaiah was prophesying, the outlying towns and villages of the southern half, called Judah, were being raided. There wasn't much left of Judah that wasn't in enemy hands. Jerusalem was a strong defensive position. It was located on a mountain, and there were plenty of ways to trap an enemy. But time was on the side of the invaders. All they had to do was keep anyone from coming in or out of the city, and they would be able to starve Jerusalem out. In a matter of about a month or two, Jerusalem would be so starved that they would have to surrender, and Judah's king would be killed. It was in this context that Isaiah was prophesying. There was no hope, really. It's not like Judah could really count on God to save them. They had disobeyed God for generations and generations, so only a fool couldn't see what was coming. It seemed obvious that God was about to punish Judah for the sins they had committed for hundreds and hundreds of years. The Torah said that that if Israel didn't follow God's law, then God would send an invader to conquer them and deport them away from their land. Well, isn't it bitterly ironic that the prophecy would be fulfilled by some of Judah's own brothers? At the beginning of the book of Isaiah, what Isaiah says really goes along with his expectation. Things have gotten so bad in Judah, Isaiah says, that they may as well be Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities that God destroyed by sending fire from heaven hundreds of years ago, to the point that they had almost completely disappeared without a trace. God says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They have become a burden for me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. If you recognize it, this oracle of judgment against Judah is pretty much the same as what we heard from the book of Amos two weeks ago. Judah's worship has become worse than useless because they have failed to live like they were supposed to. In that world, if you don't have worship, then you can't, you can't please the gods at all. There's no pope. They have ignored the law completely, 
and they think they're tricking God into giving the right kind of sacrifices, while they're only fooling themselves. They stretch out their hands and worship to God, but their hands are full of blood. So that's the context for this passage about Jerusalem being raised up and peace coming. There were foreign armies in the streets pillaging the surrounding villages. Jerusalem was under siege, and its citizens were locked up like a bird in a cage. There was only a matter of time before they would have to surrender, and they would be at the mercy of these foreign enemies. They had nowhere to look, and it seemed like God was abandoning them, and they deserved it. Instead, God says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that is Jerusalem, shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations will flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. So the prophecy, coming right in the midst of foreign armies running rampant through the countryside, and immediately following an oracle saying that God is not happy with Jerusalem, is not just that God would save Jerusalem. It's that God would make Jerusalem glorious. He would establish Jerusalem as the center of the entire world. This is not something that would be easy to believe when the enemies are at the gates, when you have disobeyed God for centuries and your people are starving. But it says something really important about God. At the very beginning of the Old Testament, God said to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. And that came true. Abraham's family turned into the nation of Israel with its own kingdom and thousands and thousands of members. God also said that he would bless anyone who blessed Israel and cursed anyone who cursed Israel. Of course, God would be forgiven in giving up on this promise. In fact, the covenant that he made with Israel allowed him to back out of this promise if Israel disobeyed the law. And they hardly even tried to follow the law for hundreds and hundreds of years. But in the end, it didn't matter. God would hold fast to his promises even if Israel never even began to fulfill theirs. And that meant that as the invaders were coming in and uttering their curses against the people of Israel, God cursed the invaders, and they failed to take God's holy city, the capital of the descendants of Abraham, which was Jerusalem. Our God is a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loyalty. And he blesses those who bless his people, and he curses those who try to invade them. God takes his commitments more seriously than you can possibly imagine. So when push came to shove, God simply, it didn't simply matter that his people were sinful for God. He saved them anyway. God raised up the Assyrians, the greatest and most brutal empire the world had ever seen, and they were so threatening that Aram and the northern kingdom had to pick up and withdraw from Jerusalem to defend against them. Then the Assyrians invaded Aram and this northern half, so these two nations that cursed Jerusalem with invasion now suffered the curse of invasion themselves. Later on, this huge Assyrian empire with all of her mighty gods decided to lay siege to Jerusalem too. They were unstoppable. They seemed to have all the gods on their side. And it was at this point that the true God decided that Assyria got too big for their britches. Their entire purpose in God's eyes was to save his people from invasion. They were nothing more than a tool or a pawn meant to bless his people. So God says about Assyria, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw glorify itself against him who wields it? 
as if a rod should wield him who flips it, or as if a staff should lift him up to him who is not wood. This huge, unstoppable empire is nothing more to God than an axe or a rod meant to bless his people. So how can a rod or an axe turn around and fight against the one who wields it? So one morning, as Assyria was encamped and surrounding Jerusalem at every side, the angel of death passed through and killed 185,000 Assyrian warriors. The Assyrian king fled back home with his tail between his legs. He walked into the temple in Nineveh, and he was assassinated by his sons. So in case you sometimes wonder whether God can forgive you, remember this story. If you live a long life and do nothing but sin, you might do it for about 100 years. The whole people of Israel sinned against God in ways that you simply can't imagine for 700 years by the time this passage was written. They worshipped other gods. They sacrificed babies. They trampled on the heads of the poor. But God was so committed to his promises and so willing to forgive at even the slightest whiff of repentance that he raised up an entire empire to save them And when that empire came to threaten his people, he simply destroyed them. Now this vision that Isaiah has of what is to come for Israel is not really something new. It's a reiteration of what God had always said that he would do since the time of Abraham. That through his people, he would recreate the world and set everything right. The plan would always be that the just and righteous reign of God would come to its fullness in Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, it would flow out to bless the whole world. The plan was always that one day the nations would realize that resisting the reign of God was not only futile, but completely pointless. They would see that it was far better to join Jerusalem, the city of peace, than to continue in violence. In other words, he's saying that the plan hasn't changed, even though the people of God have failed in every which way. In a time where the nations were flowing to Jerusalem with swords and spears and siege ramps to try to destroy the city, God says the plan remains the same. All nations will flow to Jerusalem in peace because they recognize the authority of God. In fact, they will realize that if God reigns in Jerusalem, then there's no point to their destructive weapons. So they'll beat their useless weapons into plows. And by the way, beating a sword into a plow won't make for a very good plow. But even a really bad plow is more useful than a sword in this world. That's the kind of peace that comes from the reign of God. That's why we have joy when we we sing, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Because if God reigns, then there's no more need for war or violence or bloodshed. In a time where nobody even in Jerusalem followed the Torah, God says the plan remains the same. Not only will Israel follow the Torah, but the whole world will come to Israel, eager to hear from God's law. From the very beginning, humans turned their back on God and tried to live a life in rebellion to God's created intention. But we just weren't made for it. And this rebellion really hasn't worked. But instead, the perfect wisdom of God will be the motivating force in everyone's mind. And people will want to hear from him. People actually follow their instruction manual. If you heard this at the time, you would think that Isaiah was crazy. Forget the fact that all the nations are trying to destroy Jerusalem right now. But just sounds unnatural for a bunch of people to come to Jerusalem just to hear God's teaching. At the very least, doesn't that sound boring? 
in a sense, some of these things have already happened in this passage. From all over the world, billions of people follow the teachings of Christ, who is the embodiment of the Torah and the wisdom of God. They go to worship and participate in Bible studies to hear the teachings of God. Again, isn't that kind of a weird thing to do? But God has changed our very nature, back to where it was supposed to be. So we do weird things like reading the Bible to hear the wisdom of God. That seems like a miracle to me. And it totally would have been a miracle to the people reading this passage for the first time. And when we see miracles like that, the only conclusion is that Christ is reigning over the world already in some sense. We can't help but sing, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. But there are also some things that we're still waiting on God to fulfill. We're waiting for the kind of peace that would lead people to prefer a really bad plow to a really good sword. In a day where there is war and violence all over the place, I can't tell you how often the phrase, neither shall they learn war anymore, rings through my ears. One of the things that's confusing about Advent is that we tend to think that it's just an extension of Christmas. In other words, that it's about preparing for God's first coming. But actually, Advent is about preparing ourselves for Jesus to come again. We look at passages like this one that promise some unbelievably beautiful world, and we look forward to the time when that actually happens. And while we're looking at such beautiful images like swords being beaten into plowshares, we look around at the world and we live that we live in, and it's a common image for, on the news to see swords wielded in murderous hatred. We live for a world where all peoples come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. But we turn on the news, and we see three incomprehensible massacres in one week. Once we see this disconnect, it's impossible not to want to do something about it. How can we not want to make this world, with all its grief and pain, look more like that one? How can we not want to convince other people that the world is better when Jesus Christ reigns? How can we not try to convince people that the law where we lay our, down, our lives for each other is a better law than the law of this world which is marred by sin and death? We are so blessed, but we still have to sing, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He moves to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. In other words, Advent inspires us to do the work of the church. But there's a sense where in Advent, we also look back at what God did by sending Jesus the first time as a guarantee that he will come again. We've seen, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransomed captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here, because we still recognize that we're in a position similar to where Israel was before Jesus came the first time. We don't feel the fullness of God's presence, and the world still doesn't look the way that it's supposed to. But we know that he's coming again because he came the first time. And there's nothing we can do to mess it up. We know that God will accomplish all this because he takes his obligations seriously. He saved a wayward and rebellious Israel from all its enemies by raising up empire after empire until one of them just went ahead and left them alone. When Israel showed themselves incapable of fulfilling the, their end of the law to save the world, God took on flesh as an Israelite in Jesus Christ and fulfilled it for them. At this very moment, he's empowering his new people, the church, to do his work in the world and to make this world look a little bit more like the world that God describes in this passage.
He's blessing those that bless them, and he's cursing those who curse them. And make no mistake, the world looks a lot more, more, like, this pa- more like this passage than it did when it was written. And he's doing this even though the church is sinning, even as it's cracking and splitting and disobeying him, all because he takes his commitment to save the world through his church seriously. And there's nothing that's going to stop him. Let's pray. Most merciful God, we thank you for your patience in accomplishing all your purposes, even as your church fails you. Continue to inspire us with a vision of your kingdom in this Advent season, so that your beautiful gospel will motivate us in all we do. Amen.